Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning everybody, this is Annie. And Kim. And we've got a pretty action-packed show today. We've got uh, an interview with uh, Debbie Brenner later on about the uh, big march in the city, uh, She's from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism and there's going to be a big rally today at um, 10 o'clock at Parliament. Yep, on the steps. And, uh, be, uh, of course, we've got the uh, usual rank and file as well as this is the week that was. But before we get to that, in this half hour, we're going to, we've got the pleasure of uh, listening to some interviews that have been put together by Vivian Langford. Now, we've got Vivian on the line. It's about the anniversary of the 13th anniversary of Timor-Leste's uh, independence. So we'll just uh, get to business. The business. G'day, Vivian. How are you? You're listening to Community Radio. 3CR. 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 855 AM. G'day, Vivian. Oh, a bit of Hello. technical issues there. Someone, Hi. for some reason or other, likes to put the whole thing out of commission the night before. I think they Sabotage. must have. Yes, I think they must have uh, parties or something in the studio <laughs> on the night before our yeah. show starts. But Vivian, you went to the uh, uh, Timo Leste Independence celebrations on May the twentieth. Yeah. yeah, it was up at Maliana, and that's right on the border with Indonesia. So there was a lot of army presence. It was rather daunting, but very happy occasion, and uh, people were there. Uh, People from the kind of hill villages, you know, dressed in sort of indigenous costumes, feathers in their hair, and men with huge pectorals sort of standing around. They were kind of like an army of people, and they'd been part of the guerrillas. They were all lined up, in, and, and the present day modern army was there too. And I met a lot of people, and I was very surprised at this huge international group of people who had all helped gain Timor's independence when everybody else said it wouldn't happen, you know, it's never going to happen. And I loved meeting them and I thought, look, I'll just interview a few of them while I'm here because this would be heartening for people at 3CR because 3CR used to have a Timor program called, um, I think it was called Timor Calling and that kept the people of in exile in Melbourne and, uh, you know, the Timorese people who were just struggling to get any information, that kept them going. I think it, may, it must have helped a lot of them keep their courage up and belief in the fact that they would become independent. It's almost a miracle to see, you know, a newly independent country like that. It's so relaxing, you know, they're relaxed. It's a normal place. 
And uh, you were able to uh, speak to. Can you? I mean, we're going to play some of the uh, inf- yeah, interviews. Okay. It's about it's about radical radio, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Well, that's right. Well, I interviewed Peter Murphy, who was part of um, a magnificent operation of clandestine radio, and he tells exactly how they did it. They smuggled in a transmitter, and then they received the um, broadcast in Darwin, but it was illegal, so they had to hide out in the bush. And the other people, the other person was a man from Portugal. He's from Portuguese radio. And when Timor was sort of melting down in 1999, you know, the um, independence was sort of on the horizon, but the Indonesians were, uh, or the militias were burning everything down. He was reporting from there. And for 11 days, the Portuguese radio just suspended all other broadcasts and they just broadcast from Timor. And I just thought this would give heart to some of the people who broadcast nowadays from, from 3CR who... The Chin Radio, the Papua Papuan program, you know, they, they're trying to give courage to their communities. And it can happen, you know, this is to prove that it can happen. And 3CR has played a big part in it. I also interviewed people up there who, who are broadcasting, you know, nowadays in free East Timor, and they've been trained by 3CR. So my little thanks to 3CR, and I'd like you to listen to uh, Peter Murphy and... Um, Manuel Arcasio. It was incredibly moving for me to meet them and to hear their story of how radio really works. Well, thank you, Vivian. That's very, very inspiring. We'll um, get to the interviews now. Thank you. I'm still in East Timor and I've met Peter Murphy here, who's an Australian person who's received a great honour from the Timorese government. It's the Order of Timor and it's basically for his long activism in defence of their independence. He's one of those few people who believe that the independence would come even when everybody else said, no, no, it'll never happen. So welcome, Peter. And could you tell us about the radio connection? I believe you set up a radio with someone else in Darwin during that time. Hi, Vivian. Yes, I was just uh, one bit player in a big operation because after the uh, invasion on December 7, 1975, the resistance had to retreat to the mountains. They were able to hold the Indonesian military really at at, at a distance uh, for a couple of years, um, really till the end of 1978, so that's almost three years. And in that time, there was a a vital need to, to have communications out. And uh, just prior to the invasion, a number of transmitters had been uh, able to be flown into Dili and they were taken by the Valentil and Fretland leadership uh, when they retreated from Dili and we had radios in Darwin. And in, in, I think, January 1976, Radio Australia was ordered to cease taking messages transmitted from Timor-Leste. And um, when that happened... This is on the order of the Fraser government. Um, when that happened, there was a decision to create a, a radio link, even if it was illegal, mm-hmm. to enable communication to continue because the Fretilin external delegation was based in Maputo in Mozambique. So um, the, this was a, an arrangement between Fretilin and the Communist Party of Australia to do this operation because it was uh, needed some security and um, some real dedication <clears throat> and uh, so actually the government of Mozambique which was itself only one year old yes. uh, after the uh, defeat of the Portuguese colonialism there um, donated funds to purchase uh, four wheel drive 
and pay for some radios again some more equipment mm. for transmission and uh, there was a test done and in, in the uh, the what do you call it the high country yeah. just between um, Lithgow and Bathurst oh. where a comrade had a farm and from there we could broadcast to Timor and contact Radio Maberi. Um, so, so just let me, can we just explain it again for the listeners? So you, you smuggled in the transmitters. They then mm. transmitted out the information to you in Darwin. Mm. Radio Australia wasn't allowed to take it, mm. but the Mozambican okay. government, new government, yeah. could gave you the wherewithal to yeah. transmit it. Where? Where did you transmit it? So what happened was, um, I was just saying about how it was set up, because there's a gap between January 76 and when the radio became mm. operational. So we tested that we had the capacity to do it mm. and the technique, and then we had to get people to Darwin. So we had comrades in Darwin who were well-established leaders in the trade union movement and mm. so on, who were very, very reliable and would be the base for this. And then we had to have somebody able to live in the bush so that is completely um, hidden, mm. uh, who could sit there and listen to the radio every day with the tape recording device to record any voice or mm. and be able to take down coded messages as well. Mm. So there were two levels. One were coded messages really from the resistance to their external delegation in Mozambique and the other was more open broadcast in the name of Radio Mulberry, yeah. which was the sort of name for the poor people of Timor-Leste. And um, so we would publish in East Timor News, the Radio Mulberry content. Mm -hmm. So this was a, a very important device for getting genuine, up, relatively up-to-date information about the resistance to a global audience, especially at the United Nations mm -hmm. and, um, and in English. And then the sort of coded messages would just be uh, taken to Sydney. So this was an, a postal operation. And then there we, we set up a, a telex machine in Sydney. This is also, I think, financed by the Mozambicans. Mm -hmm. And um, the telex was used to transmit coded messages to uh, Maputo mm. in Mozambique and this this was a very important thing for the leadership there to know in detail you know what moves to make and uh, Jose Ramasorda was based in Maputo but he, he was the main person going to the United Nations and in those years there were several votes at the United Nations about accepting what Indonesia had done they were always defeated mm. and they were really defeated because there was credible information that there was a, a resistance movement in Timor which was strong and was determined to resist this yeah. occupation. So it was a very important political achievement. Well, it was. And what sort of information was coming out that in those early days of occupation when um, mm. Indonesia was taking over? Well, um, they were really mostly um, military reports. So the Indonesian military had a very big battle on their hands and in a way for those three years especially the Falantil maintained a sort of a line more like a conventional war so the Indonesian military could not penetrate very far from the coast and uh, if they tried they would be ambushed and there would be these battles and these would be reported to us and then transmitted to the world mm -hmm. so this was a very dramatic news because there were very high casualties among the Indonesian soldiers not that we should celebrate anything like no. that but really it was a very tough struggle and then there were other developments political developments within the 
the government of Timor-Leste about how to manage the struggle. And then there was also the fact that by, say, early 78, the Indonesian military had realised they couldn't handle the situation, so they called in the American and British advisers. They got special aircraft, like slow-flying bombing aircraft, to given to them by the British or sold to them by the British and the Americans and um, they, they launched a different kind of war and, and so 78 was a different year where there was a lot of casualties among civilian Timorese then there was a lot of starvation towards the end of 1978 the leadership decided that most of the people in the liberated still free area should surrender and go down to Dili uh, to Baokao to these coastal towns yeah. and uh, there was a lot of people died in that time from starvation. Mm. So there was a calculation that maybe 250,000 people yeah. died of starvation. Yeah. And, of course, there were high casualties in the battles as well because of the different weapons used. But all of that information we could get out. But unfortunately, really close to the end, maybe in October 1978, the radio was captured by Indonesian troops. But they didn't... Mask, they masked it. So the same person kept broadcasting, uh-huh. but you could tell that something was wrong. So there was different methods used to try to you know, clarify really what's happening. But unfortunately, that radio capture in, in Timor enabled the Indonesian military to trick the leadership of uh, Falantil and uh, right on the last day of 1978, so December 31, there was an ambush and the commander Nicola Labato was killed and several oh, other leaders and, and there was a major breakdown then of the resistance oh. So and also we had no reliable information coming out of mm. Timor-Leste so after that there was a lot of discussion in the external delegation about what to do and it took a couple of years actually but again in Australia we were able to design a ghetto blaster that was really a transmitter Mm. and smuggle it into Dili in a more conventional way Mm. and it was able to reach the mountains in the Manatuto district and uh, again information started to come Mm. by radio Mm. but it was much more sporadic than what had happened before Mm. because the whole resistance movement broke down into small guerrilla bands that was very difficult for the Indonesian military to find and the level of military conflict was reduced but even so politically speaking the um, Indonesians couldn't really conquer the people. Mm -hmm. The military couldn't really conquer them. So in 1983, so this is maybe five years later, there was a truce and a negotiation. This is by the time, by this time, Janana Gushmao was the leader Mm. of uh, the resistance. And um, the the, uh, Indonesian military wouldn't really um, agree to an independent East Timor and so the truce broke down. Mm. So they couldn't really break the will of the people mm. to demand their independence. Mm. And we were able to get information about that out as well. So it was much harder without the, the really reliable radio link, but we were able to help in that regard. It's so um, valuable, listeners. I hope you're tuning into this radio program to hear, we're talking to uh, Peter Murphy, who's just today on the Day of Independence in East Timor, received an award among other people, journalists from Portugal and many different activists who struggled to maintain faith in the uh, right of the East Timorese to be independent. Mm. And 
And uh, as he mentioned, Niccolò Laubauto, who was killed, um, there's a huge statue of him as you come in from the uh, airport, like massive. Mm. And uh, today we uh, heard a speech from the uh, president of uh, East Timor, um, Town Matan Ruak, and I believe he was, as a young man, uh, very young in this resistance fight in the mountains. And I've just watched TV here in the hotel, and, and it's a lovely. He was all visiting those warriors, you know, those veterans. veterans, those people in the villages and these little, you know, really high mountain places, really hard to get to even today. The roads don't really get there, I don't think. And he was um, clasping them in their, his arms, you know, some people were weeping and. He, I don't, it wasn't translated what they were saying, but he was obviously a very fatherly sort of president. And they've got this shared tragedy, as yeah. Peter mentioned, the deaths in the you know living memory. So, Peter, what happened then? Um, I'm interested in this story in terms of international activism. You know, this network of people all over the world, I was surprised to know so many people had been involved. Um, For listeners who are involved in different struggles nowadays, you know, for liberations of different sort, um, what what do you think kept people together or what what are your reflections on that, having been a big part of it? Well, Timor, you know, was... The Timorese people were very briefly supported by China but when uh, the 1978 happened there was a different uh, alignment between China and the US and that that support disappeared and the Soviet Union didn't support their struggle because they would rather be a friend of Indonesia than support the rights of these small people but people like us in Australia and there are various you know people all around the world knew the the right thing was the rights of the people. So, in a, in, a, in a way, it was no problem to me to just say government policy was completely wrong and people all around the world who've got a, a reasonable moral compass can just make that judgment themselves. Mm. And we were able to um, have networks that were sufficiently good to coordinate some things, mm. you know, quite well. Um, but as I said before to you, um, especially after 78 the the flow of information was very sporadic and it was very mm-hmm. hard to maintain a con- continuity of, of action but all the same the organization stayed in place so when say the pope visited in the late 80s um, and there was an eruption of protest in, in his presence about the indonesian occupation um, the whole world could see it because that was on global television Mm. and then in 1991 in November there was the Santa Cruz massacre which Mm. happened with uh, US media there and the footage was able to come out so it's a pre-internet but um, and so it was much very dangerous to get the footage out but it came out and because US weapons were used to shoot civilians and it could be seen and couldn't be denied. Uh, then the US Congress started to take action against Indonesian mm-hmm. military. They cut military aid mm-hmm. to Indonesia. Mm-hmm. So the pressure started to really mount on the Indonesian regime. And people all around the world could vi- see this. And so all of our organisations actually were enlivened by that. And it was a very big tragedy. Um, but the intensification after that was really another whole whole step up. And it makes me think how, how important the media is, that the media is there and the media is sympathetic and has the context, understands the background. I think of Alan Nairn, Robert Dom, yeah. and um, 
Oh, who's the one who... Max Dahl. Max Dahl, that's yes. right, who they uh, they mentioned him today in the speech. Apparently he's not well, but they yeah. thanked him for his yes. work. So could you talk a bit about those people, those individuals? Because we think of this mass movement being the necessity for mm. most things, but yeah. often it's just really no, cra- brave people. Key. It is no, the mass key. It is the key, but I think that what I was emphasising before was the information that's reliable and credible, yes. yeah. and uh, of course media people, that's their job to do that. Often they fail, mm. but in this case, that was Amy Goodman and that Alan Nan, yeah. they, they, were, they were there. They made sure they were there. Yeah. And uh, they were there because a Portuguese delegation was meant to arrive. So this was, uh, you know, the result of another major effort in Europe mm. to to get the Portuguese government and get the European Union itself to take more seriously the abuses going on in Timor Leste. Mm. So a lot of things came together which you know you couldn't predict mm. but those those journalists were very brave and they stood their ground against incredible threats. They they could have been killed themselves mm. and they didn't flinch. So this is what we need Yes. I must say also at the ceremony today there was one relative of the Balibo Five, one of the other journalists who was there back in the invasion time. Well, thank you, Peter. I could talk to you for hours about this, but thank you very much for your um, talking to us on this day of great honour for you. Thanks very much. And we've been listening to some a fabulous interview done by uh, Vivian Langford from 3CR's Beyond Zero program. Uh, Beyond Zero is on on Mondays at 5 and repeated Friday 8.30. Now, that program is actually about uh, uh, environment and uh, Vivian um, has uh, gone to the celebrations of uh, Timor-Leste's independence on May the 20th this year and has done interviews with uh, people who were intimately involved in the struggle for uh, independence in East Timor through Radical Radio. And we've just been speak- she's just been speaking to Peter Murphy and uh, now we're going to move on to her piece with uh, Manuel Acacio. I'm reporting from Maliana in East Timor and I've met a person here called... Manuel Acasio. Manuel Acasio. He's a journalist from the radio in Portugal and he has received an award. He's standing in front of me with a huge medallion given by the Timorese government to people who were great activists in the time of occupation under the Indonesia. And I'm just interested to know his story. What did radio contribute to the um, getting the information out about what was happening in Timor? Radio can make, can make the difference. And my radio helped in Portugal to make the difference. My radio, which is called TSF uh, Radio Journal, it's a news radio, Portuguese private news radio. <laughs> we were founded in 1998. And since that first day, we decided to give uh, a great... Um, to speak about this Timor. We were only journalists. We just made journalism, but we spoke about this Timor. Because even in Portugal in 1988, uh, 1988, Timor was surrounded by a wall of silence. There was a great Portuguese poet, Sofia de Melbrainer Anderson, who wrote and said, Timor, which is surrounded by a wall of silence, more big and thicker than the Berlin Wall that so many people talk. And being journalist doing journalism, speaking about this Timor, telling our listeners what's, what's, what, what was happening here, what was the fight that the resistance, 
who are still fighting that these people want to be heard has made the difference. We helped to, we did our parts to break that wall of silence. In 1999, after the referendum, when the referendum happened, uh, well, since that time, my radio has always uh, sent reporters to East Timor. I was one of them. I was here several times since 19, 1999. And when, after the referendum, when the militias and Indonesia destroyed all the country, my radio, which is a private radio, that means that leaves some publicity, made a special emission of 10 days only uh, about East Timor. In the first 100 hours, we didn't pass publicity. And it, uh, for the 10 days long, we only spoke about this Timor, from what was happening, with my reports from Delhi or from Jakarta when we were pushed away, uh, talking to Taur at the mountains, talking to the people, the priests, the people who were dying, who were suffering, and we give them voice. It was their struggle, not our struggle, but give them the voice they never had has helped to make the difference. But, um, we just mentioned the president, the new president of uh, Timor-Leste, Tom Martin Ruak. As he said, he was a guerrilla fighter in the mountains from a young age, I think. Yep. He took over, um, you know, everyone will remember Shanana Guzmao, but by that time Shanana Guzmao was in prison in Indonesia. And uh, in Australia we heard all about that a bit, but not in our mainstream radio. More the uh, secondary, the sort of left-wing press maybe would be telling this story. But now you are here today, 2015, and you see he's now the president who was a guerrilla fighter who you interviewed. Tell us what that makes you feel. I'm honoured <laughs> when he gave me this, uh, the medal for my radio. <laughs> I admire President Taur. Uh, he was a great guerrilla fighter. Uh, he, my English is very well, as you, uh, you and our listeners can, uh, can understand. But... Uh, he give when Shannon was uh, arrested. He, he stays in front. Uh, well, not uh, not uh, after. There was several uh, commanders who took uh, the command. They were been dead or been captured, and then he was the last commander of the Fallen Teal. He give a new life to Fallen Teal. He has the division, which is. Um, I'm smiling because Tower Matan Huak means Tower that has two eyes. Oh. Uh, he is a big vision. So that's what, what that's why I'm smiling. You can you can see, but I'm telling you I'm smiling. Uh, and he has the vision that he has to strengthen the the gorilla the gorilla, uh, and he, he gives a new life to gorilla, rearm and put Valentil uh, in the front line. And he made a wonderful job. Uh, then he told his men to fight when there was needed to fight, and he told his men, "We are not going to fight in the referendum. We are not going to do what Indonesians want us to do. We are going to steal in the mountains because if we go there, they can say, "Oh, war again, civil war again." If they are. Maybe that was, that's uh, my opinion, mm. but I think that was his uh, hardest battle. Tell his men, we are staying here in the compounds, but our people is dying. Yes, 
but we cannot give excuses to the Indonesians to tell we have another civil war. And that was a decisive, a decisive moment of this fight. And you won. Yes, well today is the 20th of May and it's uh, the 13th anniversary of independence, real independence and I have never been to Timor before but I saw in Delhi the new parliament, a university, the national university, people uh, growing up here now in complete peace. I'm sure there's still problems but there's a lot of um, young energy here. What do you notice? I notice a huge difference uh, from 1999, the first time I was here. In the, in the day of the referendum, I was working here at Maliana. I did the end of the referendum here. I saw uh, just after the referendum, the militias begin to, 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 to burn the houses of the young, of the resistance, um, and the shotguns and all, and all that. The last time I was here was 2005, 10 years ago. And there is a huge difference. Delhi is different. There is a lot of development. Um, uh, the, you can see, I don't know the word in English, scars. Yeah, the, you can see that uh, in the city there has a lot of scars from the uh, buildings that have been burned. But there is new construction. But the biggest difference I've noticed is in the people. Uh, we saw them with anxiety, uh, with fear. Now we look at them, we look at them, and this is a normal country. They have a normal wife. Like we, we, can do, we have in Portugal, uh, or in Australia, or everywhere. They may be poor, yes, but they are free. Yeah, wonderful stuff. That was uh, Manuel Acasio. What an incredible interview. Yeah, yeah, that was from Vivian Langford from Beyond Zero 3CR program that is on on 5 o'clock Monday. She's a, a wonderful reporter. She does great work on environment, but this time she shared her skill by uh, giving us a little look into the what must have been fantastic time in uh, Timor, a free Timor-Leste. May the 20th, Independence Celebrations. We're now going to move on straight on to uh, Rank and File Radio. You're on 3CR with Annie and Kim. This is Solidarity Breakfast. On today's edition of Rank and File Radio on Community Radio 3CR, the former Victorian Secretary of the Electrical Trades Union, Dean Mile, joins me to discuss the Prices and Incomes Accord and Industrial Relations Agenda introduced by the Hawke and Keating Labor Government of the 1980s. And welcome back to 3CR, comrade. Uh, thank you, Mark. It's good to be back again. And today we're going to uh, discuss the accord and look back on a union uh, mass meeting that took place in the early um, 1980s. So firstly, uh, who called the meeting and uh, what unions were involved that day? Oh, well, you're, you're going through some history now, mate. Um, <laughs> Uh, I started my apprenticeship as an electrician out of Ryko Filters in Sunshine in 1979. I became a shop steward when I was still an apprentice. And in those days, we had the Metal Trades Federation of Unions. It was largely led by the what we now call the AMWU. You know, they were the left-wing think tank and probably the most progressive unions, certainly of that era. And uh, the Metal Trades Federation of Unions basically called the meeting. Um, deals had been done at the ACTU level to enter an accord. And a lot of work was done on metal stewards to convince them that the the accord was a good thing for workers. So the meeting was called to endorse 
uh, officially uh, that federation of unions to uh, sign up to the accord process, the ACT had broken with the Labor Party. Okay, so that was the, the reason for the meeting. So, yeah, it was a good meeting. Okay, and that meeting uh, was chaired by a, a legendary figure of the trade union movement of the time. Well, John Halfpenny uh, certainly was. Um, the best public speaker I've ever heard. Uh, he was uh, really something special, John. Um, powerful figure, communist trained, um, good strategic unionist in his day. He'd really done well. He was the secretary of the Metal Trades Federation of Unions, secretary of the AMWU, as we called it at the time. Uh, so he was uh, given the report and uh, moved the motion that we should all enter the, the accord. And look, I was a a lefty kid, and uh, although very young, I think it was about 19 or 20 at the time, I thought fundamentally as a, as a unionist that sort of grown up in a traditional union sort of sense in the workplace I was at, that it was wrong to basically limit workers' wages to CPI in line with prices but not limit anything in the way of profits a company could make. I, I fundamentally couldn't quite get my head around why we were doing that. And there was a spin of industrial democracy and workplace consultation. I never thought the employers would be genuine about it, to be honest. So I was opposed to it as a young kid, but I certainly didn't have the numbers, market. So I remember at the uh, old Trade, Trade Hall Council uh, chambers there, it was, probably had about three or 400 pretty hardcore metal trades federation union stewards in there. Yep. And Harpenny moves the report and says, look, it's the best thing um, ever. I was just a kid, and I, I thought I should I should oppose it, and I, you know, sort of meekly made me way to the microphone. Never spoke spoke at a union meeting before like that, and, and uh, said, "Well, I think it's wrong. You know, workers shouldn't, you know, limit the ability we can earn when the company doesn't limit its profits. Doesn't make sense." And uh, yeah, I was I was shitting bricks. <laughs> <laughs> First time the microphone up, John Halfpenny, you're going up against Halfpenny. You know, I was landed to the slaughter. Okay. You're only young at the time, as you mentioned, 19 or 20, so um, how did you find yourself in the position of uh, shop steward at the factory you were doing your apprenticeship at? Well, there was only a handful of electricians, and I'd developed okay. a real on-the-job interest in in health and safety and unionism. Um, I enjoyed... Uh, I was a maintenance electrician, so we had free reign of the big factories we used to work in. Mostly women of a non-English-speaking background were workers there. My mum used to work there. God, she was pregnant with me there years ago, so... You know, they were wonderful people, um, but workers weren't treated well. And, you know, I, was, I learned that I could do something about that if I become an active unionist, and I loved that. So that was my union involvement. But, um, you know, it was a sort of real <clears throat> grassroots way of learning about unionism. But at the meeting, it was funny. There was a, there was a red-headed uh, young fellow, a bit older than me at the meeting, and he got on the microphone. He was a bit more confident than I was. He said, oh, it's not crock of shit. <laughs> we don't like the accord. I uh, shouldn't be doing this with the bosses, and you know, I support it, you know. And uh, I think we got a, a gentle clap of one or two, you know. And John Halfpenny gets up to the microphone and absolutely splatters us all over the trades hall with his right of reply. You know? He was brilliant. And, yeah, he made you embarrassed. He made you feel like you shouldn't have said anything, that you're against the interest of workers by opposing the accord. And, of course, the thing got voted up with two votes against um, <laughs> at that meeting. But um, it was funny, though, because 19 years later, that red kid from Hawker to Haviland was Craig Johnson. <clears throat> and uh, I, re I remember 
the story, and I, I had said to Craig over here, do you remember in 83 when I spoke against the accord, and he goes, oh, that young kid. He goes, you were shitting yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's right, you know. Uh, but there we were 19 years later. Um, we opposed the accord. We didn't have the numbers, but um, 19 years later, we were state secretaries of our respective unions. So a bit of a lesson in that, I think, you know. You don't need the numbers to be right. Um, you shouldn't ever fear about speaking what you believe is right at a union meeting. That's uh, a really important part about union meetings is have the guts to, to run your line. And even if it isn't popular at the time, you know, just soldier on. It's sort of funny the way things worked out for those two kids who opposed the accord. So at that meeting on the day, how did Halfpenny uh, justify the resolution he was uh, pushing? Well, I think that they... Uh, it was really interesting because the old communist influence... People, Laurie Carmichael, John Halfpenny and others within the the upper echelons of the ACTU and the national um, left, if you like, had sort of done this deal <clears throat> where they actually thought that there'd be workplace restructuring and it would lead to multi-skilling, but, you know, we needed an accord to protect a, a Labor government, get manufacturing going again, and perhaps they genuinely believed that that was going to work and that the collaboration would be genuine and the bosses would reciprocate. And I think history sort of proved them wrong on on those levels. Look, good things came out of it, I suppose, in, in a way. Bad things did too. So... Uh, I think we we're right to oppose the accord. I think it put the union movement to sleep and stopped this bargaining in our workplaces. Wages become centralised, unions become lazy. And that was the fundamental worst part in my mind of the accord. Was Could you say the accord was when uh, union membership uh, went backwards to the point of where it is today, 16% of the of workers? Well, I think when we... Yeah, I think it's a reasonable... Um, assessment of it. I think when you when unions take away from active involvement in the workplace, uh, bargaining around wages and conditions, then you diminish the interaction between union officials and the membership. And that was the where the, the accord made unions lazy. You could go and argue your case before the, the Industrial Relations Commission and then of what was fair. And it was sort of done on a national or industry basis. You didn't have that grassroots involvement. Members become very disconnected from that. And, uh, you know, I think with the return back to enterprise bargaining under Keating, itself being problematic uh, because you then couldn't vary awards at all. That was the problem, the fall down with that. But enterprise bargaining gave unions a chance, if you were good enough and you were strategic enough to get back in the workplace and bargain with and for your members. That part of it was good. Okay, so it was um, both yourself and the other bloke you mentioned, the fiery redhead, uh, Craig Johnson, who took state secretary positions in your respective unions, um, and you both opposed the leadership of the unions and to take um, control of those unions? Yeah, we did. Uh, they weren't given to us on a plate. I, yep. I think Craig probably was felt the same situation, that he's the leadership that I challenged, you know, good bloke, so I, I <clears throat> took on a secretary, Gary Mayne, he's a real decent bloke, but... You know, the union was just not going where it needed to go. The ETU was a followers' union. We were lazy. We were we nowhere near as good as we could be. I think, you know, hopefully I'll prove that in the years to come, the decades to come. I think Craig felt the same about the metal workers. It had fallen from grace. It never had the strong leaders that it used to have. It lost a few key officials. So we both challenged for a more traditional um, grassroots 
stewards played a major role in our thinking and the way we ran our unions. We're quite old school, Craig and I, and uh, I'd argue that it's still the right way to go. You know, have good, strong steward structures, strong membership involvement, be strategic. You know, that sort of old, left, traditional union training, I, I think it's right and it's still right today. Would uh, rank-and-file teams of activists um, contesting elections in their unions, be whatever union, uh, would that be something you would encourage all unionists to become involved in? Yeah, look, I think, you know, if you feel your union's going... Get involved in the union first and foremost. You know, if you've got a good leadership and you've got a good direction to your union, become a part of it. That's the most important thing. If your union is poor, if it's poorly run, uh, if it's run for the wrong reasons, um, then... Yeah, you know, be strategic about how you challenge. You don't want to just go and get slaughtered. Um, but so many union elections uh, are about ALP factions. You know, one part of the right challenges the union from another part of the right. We've seen it in the HSUA. It's appalling. You don't see the members being beneficiaries of that. So if it's for the right reasons um, and you do it strategically and you do it well, of course, you know, that's democracy. Okay, and it was years later from that meeting in 1983 when, uh, when it was yourself and uh, Craig Johnson again who would support each other on the Crown Casino project in Melbourne when you were uh, fighting for a shorter working week in the construction industry. Yeah, cool. Craig, Craig became a, a really close mate and um, a really good comrade oh, to most unions, you know. He's that kind of fella and, um, yeah, made mistakes on the way. We all do. Um, but, yeah, Craig... the, the I was very ambitious. I thought that the 35-hour week had been put on hold with those accord years and I was brought up in an era where we campaigned for it but most never achieved it and I always thought it was very important for workers to have work-life balance. I saw what an RDO did in terms of helping people. I thought one a fortnight was a good thing and uh, had a had a massive blue ETU one out. I was still an organiser and decided to take on growth on the Crown Casino. So, <laughs> you know... Some could say, you know, geez, you picked a big one, but it was strategically important. We were building a gambling facility I had no sympathy for. So, yeah, we, we said about that, and the, the only support I had was from, from Craig in the AMW. They didn't have a lot of members, but, you know, they did back us up, which was great. They're very important in history. OK, and then it was again in the year 2000, I think it was yourself and Comrade Johnson who were hauled before the federal court after you held uh, mass meetings for your members. You've done your homework, Marcus. Yeah, well, yeah, Craig and I have got a lot of good stories and uh, Campaign 2000 was, again, us trying to return um, unionism back through the Metal Trades Federation of Union, which still existed. Uh, I think I was the president and Craig was the secretary of the, the Metal Trades Federation of Unions and we wanted um, yeah, to get back to bargaining in the workplace but around a framework where every worker would get a good outcome and you could build on it in the workplace. And it was called Campaign 2000. Of course, the legislation that applied at the time, John Howard's um, Workplace Relations Act, I think it was, it, um, it prevented us from having meetings unless the boss said you could have them. Well, that, to me, challenges a fundamental right of workers to meet. So uh, the Metal Trades Industry Association, the employer group of the day, went to the federal court before Justice William, uh, Just- Justice Whitlam, Gosser, <laughs> Uh, he didn't have any choice. He, he gave an order in favour of the employers that the meetings were not to go ahead. And, but, you know, Marcus, that creates a real dilemma for a union official. If you absolutely accept that you don't have the right to meet with workers, then you kind of... you take It's like oxygen to unions. And look at, look at Abbott now and the application of the ABCC in the construction industry. You're not allowed to meet 
take away that right for unions to to talk to workers and to meet with workers and we were faced with that we had court orders and you know Craig and I said well listen you know what are we going to do here you know if we take on we're going to be in a you know in contempt of court and and look at the end of the day we we were um, unquestionably and uh, of course we it went to trial and we were found guilty of contempt and um, both of us faced uh, jail sentences and uh, it was pretty, you know, you don't like the thought of going to jail, but we, we had to make that call. And we did. And um, Justice uh, Merkel <coughs> found us guilty, of course, and um, we challenged bad law. Okay. That law still exists. And uh, he, I think he was a bit smart. He fined us $20,000 rather than jail us. I think our barrister's advice was you'd do three to six. Oh, okay. And uh, sitting there awaiting sentencing well, with, with, with my family, a young family, at the time, wasn't a lot of fun. But uh, either you're true to your convictions or you're not. Craig and I were. And interestingly, Marcus, we had Susan Mellon from the AWU, <laughs> who, was also, <laughs> who was also charged. I'll never forget uh, in the meeting with our barristers prior to going to the court, awaiting to be sentenced and expecting to do time. I was prepared to go to jail that day, and Gee. the family was, and uh, that was our thoughts. And um, the barrister said, listen, fellas, just apologise unreservedly to the court, and you might get off with a fine. And uh, I'll look at Craig, and you know, I said, I, I can't do that, you know, Craig's gone. <laughs> Craig's words were a little more bite of the mind. <laughs> 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 And uh, poor old Caesar, he was a bit of a mess at the time. And what made things worse was when we went into the court, the judge says, before I sent to you, you got anything to say, you know? And uh, Caesar Mellon stood up and, uh, and apologised unreservedly to the court. God bless him. And I thought, oh, six months is going to end up 12 here. We're going to look like bastards. So, <laughs> and our barrister says, no, nothing for Mr. Mile or Mr. Johnson. And uh, the, the place was packed and the... <laughs> Yeah, one of the wags from my union, who I won't name, was flicking the light switch on and off, and yeah, you know, the lights blinking in the court. And oh god, I think I'm going to get two years here. Please stop doing that. <laughs> but, uh, oh, it was a bit of history, but yeah, you know, sort of again a reminder, Marcus, that we have to challenge bad laws and any law that doesn't allow the worker the right to withdraw their labour. Uh, the fundamental right to meet is is never going to be acceptable. He's a death cult. Nothing but a death cult. Islamist death cult. The Islamist death cult. Have a look cult. at Islam in death Australia. Cult. Death cult. All these the mosques being built. Flag. This All is the a death funds. cult. To use this All term the money is to they dignify make. a death cult. These are the two enemies we're fighting. The communist left and Islam. Because the two are hand in hand. You mean Abbott and Reclaim Australia's anti-Muslim racism go hand in hand? Yeah, and do you know that Reclaim Australia and the United Patriots Front are organising an anti-Muslim rally on Saturday the 18th of July at Parliament House, Melbourne. That's why the campaign against racism and fascism is organising a counter-rally. We're meeting at Parliament House at 10 o'clock so we can get there first, take the steps first and show them that their anti-Muslim hate speech is not welcome in Melbourne or anywhere around Australia, not now, not ever. If you want updates on the campaign, text subscribe to 0422-726-843 to join the updates list. The campaign against racism and fascism is a 3CR supporter. 
Now listen, the annual Green Left Weekly comedy debate is back again for 2015. Two crack teams will debate the proposition that Tony Abbott is the root of all evil. Featuring Kirsty Mack, LEMC, the Minister for Un-Australian Affairs, Maureen Smith, Evan Thompson and Simon Crick, it's a titanic struggle for global comic debating supremacy. Refereed by me, uh, Rod Quantock, I remembered. Friday 24th of July at the Brunswick Town Hall, dinner and bar from 6.30, comedy at 8pm. For bookings, phone 96398622. I'll read that again, but backwards. 22689369. Supporting the radical news source, Green Left Weekly. It's the best comedy debate in the world. See you there. Yes, see you there, or be square. <laughs> <laughs> Always good to have a dose of uh, Rod Contock. It's good that he's uh, out in the uh, hustings again and uh, that he will actually be there as the MC this year. Fabulous. Fabulous, yes. I went off and saw his uh, supposed last show down at uh, the Athenaeum. Supposed. <laughs> well, because he's been turning up all over the place. I went to Castle Main and realised that there was a poster for him there. So I thought, no, he's got a lease of new life. Thank goodness for that. That's <laughs> great. <laughs> You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. And uh, you heard uh, an announcement for the anti-fascist counter-rally this uh, morning. It's starting at 10 on the steps of Parliament House. And uh, in a while, we're going to be talking to... One of the organisers, uh, Debbie Brenner. But, well, you've got an announcement as well. I do. Um, there's a PIPSI public meeting, and PIPSI, for people who don't know, is the public interest before corporate interest, and it's a meeting happening uh, 1.30 to 3.30 Sunday, the 26th of July, at the Jaika Jaika Community Centre in the Small Hall, and that's the corner of Plant and Union Street, Northcote, um, which is apparently just opposite with Westgrath Station. Do you want to say that again? Yes, it's a lot of information. So it's the Pipsy Public Meeting, one thirty to three thirty, Sunday, the twenty sixth of July, at the Jaika Jaika Community Centre, and it's the corner of Plant and Union Street, Northcote, and it's just opposite Westgrath Station. And everyone's welcome. Well, of course they are, because we all know that it's all in our best interest to put people before corporations. Exactly. Yes, this is the week that was. Kevin will endorse that. A week solidarity, Bricky Team Lister, when, as we know, last week the naive Greek people defied their caring business class and the International Monetary Profits Fund and the World Profits Bank and the Euro Profits Central Bank and said no, showing how simple they are. Under the austerity the great practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all knew was for their own good, the economy has contracted spectacularly, the debt has continued to explode, unemployment is at record levels, pensioners are living below the poverty line, and a responsible yes vote would have guaranteed them years more of the same, yet the bloody silly voters still voted no. Have no idea what's good for them. Myopia opolis. And their big supremo, Alex the surplus, encouraged them to vote no. Encouraged myopia opolis. Vote no. I have called this referendum to let Europe, Euro Europe know we mean no. And thus they voted no. And thus he voted yes. Alex the surplus votes. And thus a relieved International Monetary Profits Fund's Christine Lagarde, the wealthy side, now we can have the meaningful dialogue. 
And thus, German chain seller Angela Merkey praised her lax for realising that, OK, a little bit of austerity, like reducing the below-the-poverty-line pension to even more below-the-poverty line, no hope of economic growth or reducing the debt thanks to the wonders of neoliberal genius, higher unemployment, a few minor problems. The Greek austerity had done wonders for the German economy and the German banks, which are the same thing. And now that Mr. Anti-Austerity Alex has axed the myopiaopolis, no vote and adopted the flagging off or the flogging off of state assets to the private sector, sorry, that sounds negative, adopted privatisation, a good word. The good news is the money raised from clogging off inefficient, bloated hand of the public sector public assets to the super-efficient, lean, mean private sector will help the pensioners, I hear you say, help the unemployed, create jobs. Well, well, no, that money is earmarked to be handed straight to the banks. Alax obviously never considered nationalising the banks rather than denationalising everything else and giving it to the banks. Uh, so, Alax, what have you gained from making all these concessions? Gained? Gained? Explain gained. Uh, could you just repeat the question? Suppose the only question we left with is, why did he bother to call the referendum? Perhaps he's realised austerity is good for the masses. Listen to this big-time investment banker who this week nominated the Euro Profit Central Bank Supremo Mario Draghi to pour down as the greatest central banker ever. He was just great for the masses, he said. Then he pointed out for him his definition of masses meant market forces, stuff people, unless they're good, rich and getting richer people. Well, true to his great knowledge of how the greatest little economic order of them all works, Mario was the strongest opponent of giving the draggy, the poor down Greeks any slack at all, because he knows they've been slack. Wonder if he's living below the poverty line and recommending he live even lower below the poverty line for his own good. Or for that matter, the US of the UN of the US of the World Investment Banker who reckons Mario's the greatest ever. The greatest ever source of energy back here. As we've mentioned several times, our big supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, knows beautiful, beautiful coal will lift the world out of poverty. And last week we agreed, because there'll be no poverty when there's no world, which on one level of logic shows tiny does care about the poor. It's just a, a fairly extreme form of eradicating poverty. Goodness gracious, that, that looks like tiny now. What, what's he doing? He, he's on this big draft horse like he's jousting, brandishing this huge lance with lots of, let's count, one, two, three, four, five, uh, 26 true blue Aussie flags limping proudly. Good heavens, he's charging at that windmill. He's knocked it over. What's going on? It's ugly. Something this ugly doesn't deserve any government support doesn't deserve any government support. Uh, but it's renewable. It's an established industry. You can't say wind and sun are new industries. There's been wind and sun since God created the world. And it's a health hazard. It poses a major threat to the health of the bottom line of beautiful old King Coal. The renewable energy must stand on its own like beautiful old King Coal. Uh, yes, why do you support coal?
Uh, for goodness sake, look at our government, the coalition government. The socialists and the long-haired greenies won't let us destroy the fossil-destroying, ugly, unhealthy, renewable investment lot wasting limited public resources, so we have to ensure it invests where it can do good for the world's poor, like coal CO2 capture and storage, burying your fossil head in the sand, burying your fossil head in the sand. Uh, so we dig up coal so we can bury coal. Look, we have so much beautiful lifting the world out of poverty coal in true blue Aussie. We have declared it is obviously de facto renewable energy. Obviously, de facto renewable energy. The socialists and the long-haired greenies are preventing the world's poor being lifted out of poverty. Sorry, I've got to move on. There's all those windmills, all those ugly, ugly, unhealthy windmills. Come on, Pancho, Sancho, whatever your name is, hand me my lance. And so Tiny and his lackey Sancho hunt the windmills right off to do their bit for the environment. On which, as state big supremo hoo-hoo called for an increase in renewables, the state-caring business class party shadow fossil said it was important to achieve a balance between non-renewables and renewables in energy sources. Uh, such as, uh, well, coal, coal, coal and, uh, and renewables. So 25% renewables. Uh, coal, 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 and, uh, uh, and renewables. So roughly 11 to 12%. Uh, uh, coal, coal, coal. Oh, we can't wait. He'll sort it out. Who, who will be enjoying the excitement and deep, meaningful debates at the Socialist Party's National Conference next week? And in preparation, its disputes tribunal threw out a complaint by former Maritime Union official Kevin Bracken against the former Minister for Fossils, Martin Cliche, on the grounds, there must be room for debate and different views in the Socialist Party. And we consider that representing the fossil-caring employers, recommending that workers be crushed along with the extracted fossils, and appearing in caring business class party election advertisements qualifies as debate and as different views. Marty said his views had always been known. At the end of a day, when the sun sets, looking through the window of opportunity... Well, he went on, but that's what he said, and, and I guess we have to agree. We've known his views for years. And as for the Socialist Party, his different views just mightn't be all that different. Wonder if, no, surely not, the frightening thought of actually having a real debate over something at the Socialist Party National scripted cure for insomnia had anything to do with the decision, the thought, debate, the terror... On addressing the big issues, allowing all points of view, readers of the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin would know that Tuesday, the biggest story in the whole world was a football coach falling off his bike in track. And I thought, what a delightful way to acknowledge former state big supremo, speaking of privatisations, Jeff Footinmouth, who also fell off a bike at the weekend, but did no damage when he hit his head, which is understandable, because what more damage could he do? But what a fine example of solidarity by James Heard of Drugs, uh, sorry, Heard of Supplements. But of course, 
Jeff was displaying remorse, clearly showing by example what he had done to the state when he was Big Supremo. And to his credit, he has since worked at addressing all that depression he created. One of those great ironies, right up there with my favourite, the former Melbourne Council naming the Harold Holt Memorial Swimming Pool. Poor neutral speaker Bronnie Bonnie Bashup, the socialist beehive, looked more like a European wasp nest, as if shaved off by a helicopter rotor or bashed by a golf club, as she explained, flying into a caring business class party fundraiser at public expense was an appropriate use of parliamentary rorts, because she spends every minute of every day doing her best to make Trublu Wasi a better place on which we could make one suggestion, but we won't. But um, how do you make Troubler Wazzy a better place, Bronnie? I work overtime trying in my neutral way to clear the house of all those anti-Troubler Wazzy socialists. And for that question, you're banished under Rule 99B. Finally, it's not often we get honesty in politics, and despite all the criticisms of him, full marks to Donald Trump the poor, yet another contender for big US Arb Supremo, who, like his hair, wants to go forward. Seymour issued a tweet, Make America Great Again, with a montage of the flag and his face, banknotes, just to remind people he's filthy rich, the White House and marching train killers, taking liberty, freedom and democracy to the evil peoples of the world. Just this one small problem. The train killers were wearing Nazi uniforms. No, no, not the regular US of ones. The tweet didn't last too long, but more's the pity. Full marks, Donald, for a bit of political honesty. And after all, he wouldn't know the difference. Good morning. He's a death cult. Nothing but a death cult. Islamist death cult. The Islamist death cult. Have a look cult. at Islam in death Australia. Cult. Death cult. All these mosques the being flag. built. This All is the halal a funds. death cult. To use this All term the money is to they dignify make. a death cult. These are the two enemies we're fighting. The communist left and Islam. Because the two are hand in hand. You mean Abbott and Reclaim Australia's anti-Muslim racism go hand in hand? Yeah, and do you know that Reclaim Australia and the United Patriots Front are organising an anti-Muslim rally on Saturday the 18th of July at Parliament House, Melbourne? That's why the campaign against racism and fascism is organising a counter-rally. We're meeting at Parliament House at 10 o'clock so we can get there first, take the steps first and show them that their anti-Muslim hate speech is not welcome in Melbourne or anywhere around Australia, not now, not ever. If you want updates on the campaign, text subscribe to 0422726843 to join the updates list. The campaign against racism and fascism is a 3CR supporter. Yes, today is the big day and we're speaking to Debbie Brenner from the campaign against racism and fascism on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast. Um, Debbie, would you be able to tell us about the makeup of these so-called reclaimers, what sort of organisations are involved in it and who are they and their politics? Okay, well, um, Reclaim Australia is pretty much a shadowy bunch of um, groups and individuals. And when they first announced their existence early this year, um, it became pretty clear that um, they were 
a makeup of far-right groups and also some neo-Nazis. And in fact, the United Patriots Front, which uh, is the most public fascist face, uh, is, well, the leaders of that were in fact the founders or among the founders of Reclaim Australia. Also part of Reclaim Australia is a name that probably a lot of people would know, Danny Nalia from Catch the Fire Ministries and Rise Up Australia. And he is the the other probably most public face. So anybody who's been up against the far right in the past, such as that that huge victory that we had over the World Congress of Families last year, would um, would know basically that Reclaim Australia is pretty much a continuum of that kind of a, a build up in those sorts of groups. Yes, I remember seeing a lot of familiar faces at the reclaim yes, rallies from yes, the very familiar anti women, anti abortion. Mm. Yeah. Um what um I suppose why do you think it's so important that we confront these people? It's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, while the the profile of Reclaim Australia has been anti-Muslim, which of course it is, we also need to understand that it is more than that. It's beyond that, I should say. So that we need to understand that they're using Islamophobia today the way anti-Semitism was used after World War I, to drive a wedge to divide working-class people. But in fact, the targets of these people are not only Muslims, but they are independent women. They're unionists. They're the left. They're LGBTIQ people, Aboriginal Australians, and, and so on. So we have to confront them now And this brings us to the second reason, because we have to stop them before they grow. It's a a very small movement. It's a a fragmented movement, but they are organizing. The fact that we're having to counter-mobilize against them for the third time since April shows that they are organizing, and we have to out-organize them and stop them. That uh, notion of them being organized, uh, there's a a sense of a a sinister, insidious uh, force behind bringing together such fragmented groups. Have you got anything to say about that? Yes, uh, I agree with you on that because, again, we only have to learn from history that while we are looking at these groups, uh, we need to also learn from history that they're going to be, or they're acting now as, say, the stormtroopers. And the fact that they're, they're mobilizing, and it's not only here, of course, we need to see that global picture. I mean, the far right and the fascist movement has been building up in Europe and also in the United States and so on. And that movement comes out of a a period of economic crisis when working-class people are hurting badly. Not only are we losing our jobs, our livelihoods, and so on, but we're also losing our civil liberties. We are protesting it. You know, we've had 
continuous, massive protests in Melbourne alone since early last year. And so when we put together the hardship that the economic crisis is paying, uh, playing and um, the fact that the capitalists turn their problems into ours because we have to always pay for it. So when, when that's happening and when the revolt is building up, then this gives a role for the far right, these, these thugs that we're facing right now, to, to basically smash us. And so we know that ultimately, if, if the capitalist class needs to crush us in our capacity to revolt, they will use, use these forces that we're facing off right now. What role do you think the Abbott government, but also previous Labor governments have had in creating a climate where the far right can start to organise? A very big role, because after all, and as the, as the CART is, is pointing out, that the Abbott government has been fueling this Islamophobia. But of course, it's not just the Abbott government. We can look back to, say, 9-11 of 2001, when um, the so-called war on terror that, that, that Bush um, launched and Australia got straight behind. And this escalation of fear. Escalation of fear. It's always been Muslims and it's always people perceived to be of Arabic Well, actually background. before that it was somebody else. Yes, of course. That's right. And, and of course, um, it comes from a, a history of white Australia as well. So, I mean, it does grow out of a, a pretty hideous history that Australia's got. Well, it is. And as you say, it's been, it is directly tied to uh, various government policies, so like the 457 visas and yes. all the rest of it, the very high levels of unemployment that we're now experiencing. But as the unions have been pointing out, uh, if you are going to bring people in on these 457 visas, you would expect that they would be getting the same conditions and wages as Australians working here. But that's the big moot point. It's about uh, so they they don't take a racist view. They take a equality a view of working class equality across the globe. Uh, which you mean you, the union movement? The union yes. movement, which uh, side sidesteps the notion of a racist approach. But what I was really going to ask you about, and which I found quite disconcerting about the uh, fe- the demonstrations at Federation Square, was. People who believe themselves to be good, honest, uh, reasonable people may uh, appeared to be siding with the right. And there were two things that were at issue. One was, oh, you should be allowed to express your opinions and the left aren't allowing you to express your opinions. And the and so they're not being reasonable. And the other one was the use of icons that were are actually being misappropriated. The... Uh, uh, the BLF uh, flag, um, the Southern Cross, and uh, also trying to pretend that they are expressing uh, Aboriginal mm. uh, issue, uh, issues of uh, freedom. I found that disturbing. Well, that's how they popular or they try to popularise um, their ideas to build that movement. And what they are doing is that they are they are playing on the genuine fears of people, but um, the people who they are hoping to attract and would attract are those who are prepared to um, accept uh, scapegoats and, right. and to see a group of people or several groups of people in society as being the reason 
for their their misery That's right. and their insecurity rather than the fact that um, a capitalist economy is the reason for their insecurity and their misery. And so they and they dredge up. They dredge up um, nationalism. They I dredge know. up all of those 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 really divisive kind of ideas which well, are dressed up say, as unifying don't ideas. They, don't they say it's uh, the old chestnuts? Yes. Yeah. But uh, as you said, as unifying ideas. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no well, basically, that's all. So they, so they, they do try to uh, create a sense of unifying people around their very divisive ideas, if that makes, you know, that, yeah. well, that's how it works. And so it all ends in tears. Yes, and how is it shaping up for the left? Because so far the left has put up um, a more than adequate response. So I was wondering how it's shaping up for this rally. It's shaping up very well. And um, despite the fear-mongering that's been going on in the mainstream media to scare people away, um, people are really responding to that with more determination. So we are going to expect to be able to outnumber and overpower the fascists and the far right yet again, and we absolutely have to. And Melbourne is actually, as far as the far right's concerned, Melbourne is the nut to crack because um, we've held really, really strong uh, all this time, and of course, we're going to begin. Uh, we're going to continue to. I'd like to just add that I think it's significant as well that today, while we're facing off these people in Columbia, South Carolina, there is a mobilization against the Ku Klux Klan. Oh. And so, you know, I, it's it's. I think it's important for us to keep in mind that we're part of a a, a global picture here, and we should feel a part of that. Take take heart in that. Yeah, so do come down to the rally 10 o'clock at Parliament because there's a slogan, you always lose in Melbourne, and, you know, we've got our pride, so make sure you get down there. Yeah, and you're on 3CR with uh, uh, Kim and Annie and Debbie Brenner uh, talking about the anti-fascist counter-rally that's going to be on at 10am down at uh, Parliament Steps, Victorian Parliament Steps. We will all be there. Um, And uh, if... uh, you forget why we need to go down there and uh, that Australia needs to face up to its racist past. I found a piece by Gary Foley. He was at the Cornell West uh, talks earlier this year and uh, he doesn't did an introduction to Cornell West, but he, he, what, he, what he says is so fantastic. I think it will enliven you to get off your seat and go down to Parliament Steps today at 10. Greetings, folks. I'd like to uh, pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land we're on tonight. I'd like to pay my respects to all the Kuris here tonight. I'd like to pay my respects to all the old people who are here tonight. Congratulations on living this long, folks. My brother, Cornell West, got a doctorate as a philosopher. I got a doctorate as a historian. That's why I always take the opportunity to inform people a little bit about history they don't know. And whenever I look at a big crowd of Australians, I know that there's a lot that you don't know about your own history. 
Not my history, not our history, your history, our history in that sense. The event tonight is an interesting one for me as a historian because I'm very conscious and I've written a lot about the connections between the African-American struggle in America, uh, the anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist struggles generally, and the links, the important historical links that have occurred over a long period of time in Australia. The earliest um, significant, historically, politically significant link was in 1907, not long after Australia became Australia. Australia became Australia in 1901 at Federation. The primary purpose of Federation, I put it to you, was to create a whites-only space. Australia began life as a white supremacist nation. The first act of the first Parliament of Australia was the White Australia Policy introduced in 1901, and it was still going strong 70 years later when I turned 21. It wasn't until Gough Whitlam got rid of it. But in that, in that Australia in the first part of the 20th century, where white supremacist ideas ruled supreme, one of the great things that happened in 1907 was that the most hated black man on the planet visited Sydney. That man was the legendary Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight boxing champion of the world. He was hated throughout America, he was hated in Australia, he was hated through most of Northern Europe for the simple reason that as a black man who couldn't be beaten, he disrupted many people's notions of white supremacy. And so it was when he came to Australia in 1907 and then again in 1908, where he fought a man called Tommy Burns, flogged him, which is why footage of that fight was banned in America for about 35 years afterwards. But in doing so, He inspired a couple of Aboriginal men who met him in 1907, who met him again in 1908, and through Jack Johnson continued their association with African, West Indian, African-American sailors and wharf workers on the Sydney waterfront and became exposed to the ideas of Marcus Garvey. And one of the things that most of all Australians don't know is that the first modern Aboriginal political organisation, which was set up in 1924 in northern New South Wales, the Australian Aborigines Progressive Association, had been inspired by the ideas of the father of international black nationalism, Marcus Garvey. See, most Australians like to cling to notions that Aboriginal people should be perceived as the hapless victims in the history of Australia. The story that I teach at Victoria University, which I've been teaching most of the day, has to do with not Aboriginal people as victims, but Aboriginal people with agency. Aboriginal people who have resisted 
the imposition of many of the lunatic ideas that have been imposed upon us in the past and continue to be imposed upon us to this very day. So the first modern Aboriginal political organisation was inspired by the father of international black nationalism, Marcus Garvey. Fifty years later, a man by the name of Charlie Perkins derived inspiration from the American Civil Rights Movement when he led what became known as the famous 1965 Freedom Ride. It was that Freedom Ride that passed through my town when I was 15 years old that first planted the seed in my mind that it was possible to stand up against the bigots, to stand up against the racists, to resist. And not long after, two years later, when I first arrived in Sydney, a man by the name of Paul Coe in Sydney handed me a book. That book was the autobiography of Malcolm X. That book changed my life. Two events happened to me when I was 17 years old. The first was I got a good kicking from a bunch of corrupt thugs who were members of the New South Wales Police Force. These days I thank the New South Wales Constabulary every time I go to Sydney because had they not have given me that kicking, I may not have developed the fire in my belly that resulted, was as a result of that. Two weeks later, Paul Coe gave me a copy of the autobiography of Malcolm X. Not long after, a group emerged in Redford which was variously known as the Black Power Group or the Black Caucus or whatever. But the important thing about that group was that we were looking at what was going on in other parts of the world, trying to derive inspiration and knowledge about ways in which we could counter the colonial horseshit that we were being subjected to in Redford. <laughs> From those ideas emerged the beginnings of what became known as the self-determination movement. There are some um, um, right-wing conservative Aboriginal leaders these days. I won't mention any names. You know who they are. Who would deride the self-determination movement. Some people say that it failed. Well, I put it to you that how can something fail if the ideas of, of the self-determination movement were never actually put into practice. You know, the self-determination movement never failed. The basic ideas that underpin the self-determination movement, the basic right of all human beings to determine their own destiny, are still as valid today as what they were 40 years ago when we first espoused it in Redford. Now, talking about 40 years ago, when I got a fire in my belly, there was a bunch of us in Redford, young, we were young and crazy, but we had this belief in our mind that we could change the world. We could change the world around us. And folks, despite all of the propaganda that you've been fed, I can tell you right now that we did change our world. Yeah. The only mistake we made mistake we made was that we took our eye off the ball and the fascist bastard changed the world back. <laughs> so I've always said for the last 10 or 15 years to the admirable young crew 
that are emerging now, the, the warriors of the Aboriginal resistance, some of that It is possible to change the world. But don't be like us, old codgers. Make sure you keep your eye on the ball and make sure you don't let the bastard change it back. The tragedy, the tragedy of 40 years ago is that when we saw, when I looked around when I was 17 years old in Redford and I saw the sort of injustice, I saw all of these things that I believed needed to be and ought to be changed. And when I got my fire, when I got the fire in rebellion, when with a lot of really good people, most of whom are no longer with us, we set up the Aboriginal Embassy, we made the world aware of what was going on in Australia, and we brought an end to the era of assimilation in February 1972. Mm. If you don't know that, you need to learn a lot more about Australian history. But when we did that, at that time, we thought the situation was extremely grim for Aboriginal people. Ten years later, Aboriginal people were dying in greater numbers in the prison system in Australia than in South Africa, where black people were in a majority. And as a result of those deaths, a royal commission was set up, what, 25 years ago or more, $50 million went into the pockets of the legal profession in Australia, courtesy of that Royal Commission. That Royal Commission came up with 300 recommendations that were designed. The Royal Commission found that so many Aboriginal people were dying in prison then because, for the simple reason, there were so many Aboriginal people in prison. 30 years ago, Aboriginal people were among the most imprisoned people on the planet. Where are we at today? There are considerably more Aboriginal people in jail today than there were 30 years ago at the time of the Royal Commission. Yep. You know, how can that be? Australians like to delude themselves into thinking that this is a, a progressive, non-racist country. If you, if, you, if you believe that nonsense, but you know, as recently as a week or so ago, when Adam Goods decided to do something on a footy field, uh, the response was just extraordinary. And if anyone believes that Australia is not a fundamentally racist society, then go and listen to the talkback that was going on on Australian radio stations after the Adam Goods, so-called Adam Goods incident. You know? Um, the denialism within Australian society needs to be addressed. Now, every person in this room knows as well as I do that within your own, and I'm addressing probably the... Uh, my brothers and sisters, the Anglo-Australians, and because you're here tonight, that means that you're good Anglo-Australians. <laughs> <laughs> the good Anglo-Australians here tonight know, as well as I do, that within your own families, and with, or if not within your own family, within your close personal friends, group of personal friends, there are incorrigible racists. <laughs> That's how close they are. There are so many that every one of you knows somebody like that. I put it to you, the challenge to you is to go and find yourself a racist. They're not difficult to find. Plenty of them about. Go and find a racist. And the challenge for you is to try and logically, rationally debate 
that racist person and try and change their attitudes and opinions. And once you've tried to do that, you will realise, like we already know, just how difficult a task that is. Just how big a problem we have in Australia and how difficult it's going to be in the long term. Now, if Aboriginal people are in jail at greater rates than they were 30 years ago at the time of the Royal Commission, what does that say about Australia? And this is another thing we have in common with that uh, great, uh, well, did I say great? That nation over to the east of us, the United States of America. The United States of America's got a big problem with racism as well. And the, the, the indicators are pretty much the same as what they are here. Look at the rates in which black people, black and brown people in America are not only being jailed, or how they're filling up the jails, Look at the numbers who are being constantly, to this day, murdered by police in America. Yep. You know? So, we have a problem in Australia. While ever Aboriginal people are amongst the most jailed people on the planet Earth, which is what they are at this moment, right here, right now, in this time, then Australia has a problem. And yet after the Adam Goods incident, uh, what did we hear from, you know, whatever, Whenever a racist incident occurs in Australia, go and turn on your talkback radio. And that includes the supposedly progressive ABC. And listen to the nonsense that is spake by people on these radio stations. The first thing you always hear, somebody says, oh, maybe Australia's a racist country. Everybody from the Prime Minister down, doesn't matter who, doesn't matter what political party's in power, whoever the Prime Minister is, oh no, Australia's not a racist society, oh no, 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 Australia's not racist, definitely not, oh that's ridiculous. Come on folks, you know there's a lot of people living in this country now who like us are not white. They know, everybody in this audience, everybody in this country who isn't an Anglo-Australian knows as well as I do the extent of the racist problem that we have in this country. Now, I'm taking this opportunity tonight to grab Cornell's uh, space for a moment to put it to you that as progressive Australians, which is why you're here, we need to do a hell of a lot more to address that deeply embedded problem of racism that, that exists in this country. Ever since 1901, when Australia became Australia in order to keep non-white people out, we have had a deep problem here. So Aboriginal people have been fighting against this all of our lives. Most, like I said, most of my friends died young trying to combat that, that evil disease that exists in our society, tried to assert our rights to basic self-determination. I believe we've failed. If there's more Aboriginal people in jail today, which is a really important social indicator, if there's more Aboriginal people in jail today than there were 30 years ago, that means that we have failed. We need your help. We need people like you to stand with us to fight against this scourge of racism in this country. We need people like you to challenge the likes of our current Prime Minister, our previous Prime Ministers, all governments in Australia. Don't be fooled into thinking that, oh, we get rid of Tony Abbott, everything will be sweet. Folks, rule number one. All politicians are bastards. All politicians are lion bastards. And folks, it don't matter who you vote for, a politician gets in.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.